Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Uh, today I really want to talk about, as we continue this, this series, Our House, God's House, I want to talk about the idea of a holy home. I wonder, quick show of hands, how many people this week have used the word holy? Can you show of hands? It's a trick question. You just sung a song with the word holy in it, right? You're like, no, I haven't used it. You have. We just sung it. But outside of, outside of that song, how many people have used the word holy in, in regular usage this week? Not many. Not many. I can't really see anyone. It, it, it's a weird thing, right? It's all right. Don't feel bad. Don't feel like, oh, man, I'm a, I'm a horrible Christian. I haven't said holy this week. It's not really like a modern English word that we use a whole lot, is it? And if we do use it, at least in my experience, we generally tend to use it in a not positive manner. Yeah? Maybe it's holy and then some other words that we won't, we would never say from the stage, let alone as Christians even think, right? That it, was, it wouldn't happen. Or maybe it's like you're commenting on someone who's a bit judgy. No, obviously none of us, right? But other people that we know in our life, well, like a character on TV that we're describing, uh, you know, we might be like, oh, a bit of a holier-than-thou sort of character, you know, a bit morally or religiously superior. I guess what I'm saying is holy is not really a word that we, we use in everyday life. And in fact, maybe it's got a bit of a bad rap. Maybe if we think about it, we're like, I don't really like that word. Maybe in a song it feels nice, but I don't know if I want to use holy in my everyday vocabulary. I don't, I don't know how I feel about us saying that. I pointed because I've got a slide that says a holy home. We put up that slide. Worked very hard on that slide. What I did is I put the words a holy home on the background that was provided to me. So that's uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but I don't know how I feel about this being a holy home. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're like a judgy home? Does that mean that, that, that we're kind of like a superior, aloof, looking down at the world. What does holy mean? And so today I really want to unpack that word holy. I want to unpack maybe some of the ways that it's been misconstrued and misunderstood and and point to the fact that actually there's a bigger, much more important concept behind it. You on board? It's good. It's good. So turn with me if you have your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 12 to 20. This is the NIV translation. It says this. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. This is Paul speaking of himself, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Who's glad they came to church this morning? Like, yeah, this is a fantastic, this is a fun sermon. This is, we're talking about prostitution, that's good. Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Why don't you bow your heads with me one more time and let's pray. God, I thank you for these moments together. I pray that as we look at your scripture, as we unpack this idea of, of holiness, of being a holy home, that it wouldn't be my ideas, but that it would be you speaking through me today. 
God, that, that you would speak to hearts and minds, that, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that we would leave knowing that we met with the everlasting God, creator and sustainer of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen. So a quick show of hands to move from our fairly uncomfortable scripture. Thanks, Paul. Uh, we'll circle back around to that in a moment. If I was to say the word moral relativism, show of hands, who knows what I'm talking about? A few very smart people. I'm with the rest of us non-smart people. I didn't know what this word meant uh, until I started writing the sermon. And, and I wanted a word to define a, a concept and a feeling that I had. A couple of weeks ago, I, I talked about this idea of, of this worldview of you do you. Yeah? When I, when I first thought of it, I, I added boo on the end. Like, you do you, boo. Like, that kind of, whatever goes. That's how I speak to, to M. And she'll be like, babe. Can you unload the dishwasher? I'll be like, you do you, boo. She's like, that's not what I was asking. That's an incorrect response. I'll be like, sorry, I'll, I'll do the dishwasher, boo. <laughs> but, but I want to unpack this idea a little bit today, this idea of, of moral relativism. Moral relativism is a postmodern idea. Postmodern basically just means now. Uh, and it's rooted in the concept that there is no absolute truth, but rather that each individual has their own truth. It's, it's interesting. It, it seems like a modern term, but the first story in the Bible is a story of moral relativism, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, and they're faced with the decision, the temptation. Do they choose to define good and evil for themselves, or do they trust in God's definition? And essentially, we know the story. They, they seek their own truth in choosing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this is the primal temptation in all of our hearts, Every day, day in and day out, do I define good and bad by my own understanding? Which seems innocuous. It seems like a small enough thing. But really, when we go down that path, ultimately what we're asking of ourselves is, will I make myself God? Am I the arbiter? Am I the person who gets to define good and bad in my world? Or is there something beyond me? And it's interesting, our world is soaked in moral relativism, a dominant uh, ideology, even amongst Christians, for a healthy and helpful approach to life, we'll put it up the screen, is do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. It, it would be fair enough if today you hear that statement and you're like, yeah, that seems, that seems reasonable. That seems fair enough. That, that seems all right. Well, we hear it all the time, statements that sound amazing like, you do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find your truth. The, the, the key problem with this being that it assumes that your heart will always lead you to a good life, that your heart will always lead you to things that make the world better, that, that all harm is immediately obvious. And it rejects ancient wisdom like that found in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's just one of my favorite Bible verses to stick on my mirror every morning and be like, get myself pumped, you know? Like other people, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have the heart is deceitful above all things. So yeah, I feel good about myself. That's a joke. That's not, that's not what I have on my mirror. I don't actually have anything on my mirror. I'm a little bit OCD about dirty mirrors, so I don't stick things on, on my mirror. But this idea that the heart is a mixed bag, that it's a mixed bag of good desires, but also of evil ones, that in us we have goodness in the image of God, but we also have our fallen nature and sin and death, and the heart can be contradictory and complex. Have you ever wanted something that turned out bad? And you're like, no. Have you ever had KFC? <laughs> right, you start and you're like, oh man, I want this so, so badly. This is gonna be incredible. Wicked wings are my calling in life. You go and you get it. And then just a little bit later, you're like, why? Why did I want something so, so bad that turned out to be so, so bad? Is this just a me experience, right? I have it and I'm like, 
my taste buds said yes, and the rest of my body says, no, <laughs> what have you done? I'm in pain. I wonder if, if, we, if we face this with our appetite for food, how much more maybe we encounter this in, in the rest of our appetites in life, that the things that we want, the things that we want to do might not actually turn out to be good for us. Which is why in this, this idea, we, we attempt to cover it with do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Putting this little caveat, no, no, you, you do you, you live your truth, you do whatever you want to do, just don't bring any harm into the world. The problem with this caveat is that harm requires knowledge of good and evil. How do you, how do you define harm otherwise? By, by what the person says? What, what if what they say they need or else it will harm them, harms someone else? And so you have to choose between two harms. Do you bring harm to someone else's family or do you bring harm to your own family? Let's dial it up to 11 and use the most extreme example I can think of. You on board? Let's say that, that you were a country in Europe. Some people know where I'm going already. And, uh, and you decided that your country did not have enough space for your people, that the restriction on your country's space was causing your people harm. And you said, the right thing for us to do is to expand the boundaries of our country for the good of our people. Our people are being harmed by these constraints. We need living space. So more of you are like, oh, I see where you're going. Some of you are like, I can't remember history class. And, and so you go out and you start taking living space from other countries surrounding you. You invade them. You subjugate them. You take them over. It seems like an extreme example, but who do you harm? Your family who needs space or a stranger? It seems silly, but, but this idea of living space, Lebensraum, was Hitler's dominant ideology for forcing Germany out into the rest of the world. And it seemed like a good idea to the German people. It seemed very sensible. We need living space. We need to look after ourselves. If it's someone's got to suffer, it might as well be someone that I don't know rather than my family. I have to choose one or the other. It's an extreme example, but, but I think it, it, it exemplifies that outside of a sacred order to the world, you can't define good and evil. That, that if we choose to define good and evil by what seems good or evil to each of us, then for each of us, good and evil will be different. And this is moral relativism. All of this to say we, we live in a world in which moral relativism has become a core ideology. Right, that people aren't going to be like, ah, oh, there are no bumper stickers that say moral relativist. It's not a thing yet. Maybe that's a, a business idea that I don't endorse, but there you go. No one's going to call themselves a moral relativist. But, but if you ask them for a guiding principle in life, they'll say something like, do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And, and what they're really saying is that if there's no ultimate definition of good, it ends up being do whatever you don't feel guilty about, which is a slippery slope. Because history has taught us it's quite easy to not feel that guilty about horrible, horrible things. In comparison, I want you to know that, that we are not moral relativists. That, that as people, as followers of Jesus, you are not following whichever way seems right. You are following or you are called to follow the way that Jesus teaches. That, that actually we have a transcendent moral authority. We believe that not us, but God should define good and evil, not us. And that as we live in step with the teachings of Jesus, we believe we find true life. And the word used in the Bible for this way of living, not just what we think is good or bad, but what God says is the word holy. You know, one of the most repeated commandments in all of Scripture is be holy as I am holy. This is God speaking to us. 
And this is a, a central idea of spiritual formation of our journey with, with Jesus is that we did not receive salvation just to wait until the end of time, just to, just to put up our feet and wait until heaven comes, but, but instead that we are on a journey of pursuing the character of Christ, of, of holiness. And it's interesting because the word holy in the Bible, it's not a moral word as, as we kind of, as we like to put a bit of a bend on it in today's society. In fact, it relates to consecration. It means to be set apart for and dedicated to God. A great example of this is that in the Torah, you have holy pots and pans, right? They're pots and pans set apart for use in the temple. They're used in, in worshiping God and bringing of the sacrifice. And these, these holy pots and pans, they're not more moral than the rest of the pots and pans, the, those immoral, nasty, sinful pots and pans that everyone else has got in their kitchen, Right? Like it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a judgment of these are good pots and pans that are moral upstanding pots and pans. And these ones, someone didn't clean the rice off them and, and they've got in. It's just baked on now and it's never coming off. It's, it's seasoning. It adds to the flavor. There's not, there's not a moral judgment of the pots and pans to later my point. You with me on this? Instead, it's what they're used for that makes them holy. It's the fact that they are set apart for use at the temple and only at the temple. It doesn't make them better than other pots and pans, but it does make them different. See, holiness isn't rules and regulations. It's, it's pursuit of God. So in light of this, and in light of me using all my jokes, this has been the light part of the sermon. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, let's go back. That, that's not true. We'll keep it up. Uh, to, to revisit 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. In light of understanding what holiness is, hopefully, and, and what moral relativism is, let's have a look at that. You up for it? Like, yeah, let's dive back in. I love me some Paul. Let's go. So he says this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have, this is Paul speaking, the right to do anything, but I will not master, be mastered by anything. See, Paul is responding here to a very familiar view from the Corinthians. That, that, that they're essentially saying, hey, God is a God of love. We're, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. Anyone ever heard that idea before? Yeah, it's true. We are free in Christ. We, can, we have freedom to do whatever we want. And Paul is saying, yeah, sure, you're free to do anything, but not everything you do is good for you. Some things that you do will become a master to you. Some things you can do will trap you and restrict you. In Romans, uh, Paul calls this the tyranny of sin that we can willfully walk into some things that are bad for us. That's the blessing and the curse of free will. And he goes on to say, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now to us, this is a weird turn of phrase. We're like, all right, Paul, that's an odd thing to say. But this was actually a catchphrase in Corinth at the time. It, it's, it's like the do whatever seems good to you as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. It's that sort of a phrase. Because the Corinthians, uh, some background to this, you might recognize this man. There's not a man, that's text. This man. Who recognizes this man? Like, yeah, that looks my uncle. No, that's not your uncle. That's Plato. Anyone know Plato? Yeah? He's a good looking guy. Uh, Plato is, is a philosopher, and, and he lived 400 years earlier uh, to, to this text being written about 50 miles south of Corinth in Athens. And, and Plato's kind of one of the, the fathers of modern philosophy, and one of his key ideas is he splits the world into two realms. Follow me because this is good. You're like, uh, philosophy, I, I'm not in a philosophy class at university for this exact reason, but, but follow me on it, right? He splits the, the world into two areas. The, there's a spiritual world, and the spiritual world was good and eternal. And, and it's actually, this is where the idea of the soul comes from, not as a biblical soul, but that idea of this, this spiritual essence that's separated from your body. 
We, we all know that you kind of think of someone in like a cartoon dying and their body, their soul rises from their body with like wings and they got a little harp and they go up to heaven. That's not a biblical worldview. That's Plato. We can talk more about that at some other stage. Not today because it would take far too long to just smush it into the sermon. Trust me, I tried. And, and then on the other side, you've got this spiritual world, good and pure and lovely and the soul separate from the body. And then you've got the physical world. And the physical world is, is evil and it's temporary. Plato literally refers to the body as a temporary cage for the soul. And, and he says, so if it's this temporary place in which the soul is trapped for a little bit of time, then, then the thought that flowed from it was, hey, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. If this is just an evil temporary prison for my soul, if it's just a, a vehicle for me getting from A to B, I'll scratch whatever itch I have. If I want sex, I'll have it. If I, if I want food, I'll eat it. It's what the body is for because it's all going to be destroyed anyway. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Your body has been made for the pursuit of pleasure, and it doesn't matter because it's all going to be destroyed by God anyway. See, the Christians in Corinth, they've just co-opted this Platonian, which is a great word, view of the world and smushed it into Christianity. Hey, we can do whatever we want with our body because God is good, but God is spiritual and the physical doesn't matter. And Paul responds by saying, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord is meant for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. The idea being that Christ was raised in a body. He didn't come back as a, as a spirit kind of distinct from the physical world, but it was both. There was a bodily resurrection, and he will raise us also, the implication being that our bodies will also be raised, that our bodies are not temporary physical prisons for our soul, but that they're given to us by God. At some stage, we'll talk about revelation and end times. Again, not the time for it now. Please stop petitioning me. Just, just relax. He goes on to say, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? He's not just using an extreme example here. Prostitution was a common practice in Corinth, both of his worship to the Greek goddess Aphrodite and because the stomach for food. Why not have prostitution? Why not scratch whatever itches your body might present if the body is just a temporary thing and it doesn't matter to God? He goes on and says, never do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said, and here he quotes Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one flesh with the Lord, is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. See, Paul is saying here the body is not a temporary vehicle to be used and abused as we see fit. And, and when Paul says flee from sexual immorality, A, everyone goes, awkward. How much? Uh, okay, yeah, no, probably only 15 more minutes. Can you hand it? Can you, yeah, just, we'll just push on through. You know, provide some anonymous feedback. Less sermons on sexual immorality, please, Jono. Very uncomfortable. I had a friend visiting church. It was weird. <laughs> so after that, we then look at the fact that sexual immorality is this Greek word, porneia. Right, I fixed it. It's all right. I, I put some Greek in there, which makes it not weird anymore. Uh, and porneia is where we get the word pornography. I made it weird again. Sorry. But it's basically this, this miscellaneous word used in, in first century Greek for, for any usage and, and all sex outside of marriage in the Judeo-Christian vision of human sexuality. What Paul is saying is that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. These are things in which God encourages you to do, in which the Bible teaches us to do in life, because what we do with our body 
matters. We are not moral to relativists. This is not just a, a meat machine that we're trapped in. It's a gift from God. And there's a divine way to live, a pursuit of holiness. You know, I think it's interesting. Christianity can have this reputation of being antibody, yeah? Like, like we're, we're, uh, we're cloistering ourselves away from the evil world and we're just waiting it out, right? Like someone walks out and their, their skirt is, is above the knee. We're like, hide. It's dangerous, right? And, 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 and it's not entirely undeserved, this view of the church. Throughout history, the, the church in some circles has had a weird view of human sexuality, right? That, that sex is dirty and it's bad. And so save it for the one you love. This is an odd, odd present. Here is a dirty, bad thing. I love you very much. <laughs> thanks. Um, thanks. Yeah. And uh, however this came about, be it like a repressed medieval monk who just really needed some therapy and was in a tower for far too long, or, or, or if it be, you know, more, more recently and, and maybe more painfully for, for people uh, around now, that kind of shadow side of purity culture in which we, we say, hey, keep yourself pure. And, and, and by uh, endorsing a, a good view of the world, we, we accidentally create a, a position of shame and hurt and, and this, this destructive shadow for a whole bunch of other people. The thing is, is that th this, this view of being antibody, it's not biblical. Scripture's view of the body and, and of human sexuality is actually higher than the, the view of secular culture, not lower. The Scripture is, is more body positive, more progressive, and I use that word with a, with a wink, than, than secular culture is. This is why Jesus' view of human sexuality won over the entire Roman Empire and changed the moral nature of the West for 2,000 years. Tim Keller puts it so well. He says this. He says, the Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent and sex, and it made sex not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with more power, but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not lower view of sex. Modern culture's sexual logic that sex is self-fulfillment and self-realization ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than a means to nurture a bond of covenant. It leads to fractured community and the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional, and so it cannot finally be intimate. See, Tim Keller is repeating what Paul says here. He's saying what we do with our bodies matter. Why does it matter? Is ultimately where we land this, this Pentecost Sunday. Why does what we do with our bodies matter? If we go to the next slide, it matters because your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul concludes by saying, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is, this is the central idea of Paul's writings here, that your body is not a dirty machine, but it's made by God, redeemed by God, and a house for God. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. The temple in Jewish theology was a place of overlap between heaven and earth. And so under this new covenant, because of Jesus, we are the temple. That now not just our minds, not just this distinct, good, spiritual part of us, but all of us is made to be the place of overlap between heaven and earth. Not only are we the church, not only are we collectively a holy home, but you individually are a holy home. 
set apart for God, redeemed by God. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Set yourselves apart, live holy lives. And to say that in today's day and age, to say that there is an ultimate moral truth, to say that there is a true and a good way that we should live. And then in, the, in, in comparison, that means that there has to be bad and destructive ways to live. That's heretical. Right, that's the sort of thing that it'll be defined as, oh, that's, that's hate speech. That's, that's infringing upon other people's rights because it goes against the established ideologies of culture, which isn't surprising. Romans 1, Paul talks about the fact that the first sign that a culture is turned away from God is that the body in general and sexuality in particular become the new focus of worship. Right? A, a culture's view of the body is a great indicator of their view of God. I'll get the keys player up. I'm done. But, but I didn't want to leave you. It feels mean to stand up here and say, hey, we're holy. Hey, you're a holy home for God. Hey, what you do with your body matters. Good luck. Right? I was like, oh, cool. I, I was fairly aware of that. I have some guilt going on in my life about the things that I do with my body that I know I shouldn't do. Uh, how am I meant to live this holy life? How am I meant to live in pursuit of the call that God has got for me? This, this feels hard. In a hyper-sexualized, morally relativist culture, it feels like spitting into the wind to simply say, this is a holy house. Honor God with your bodies. And, and so today I want to bring you the most practical and, and the most uh, established biblical idea to help with this, and that's the idea of fasting. And I don't just mean like what we do when we do a Daniel fast. And I, I don't mean like abstinence, like oh, I'm fasting social media or I'm fasting alcohol. Those are great. I mean the traditional idea of going without food for a time. An appropriate response to me saying that might be, why? How does fasting, how does dieting, how does restricting what I eat help me with controlling my body, with dedicating my body to God, with making my body a holy home for God? The first thing I want to do is point to the fact that we are standing in the middle of a proud tradition. That until the early 1700s, fasting was actually a core practice in following Jesus. That, that Christians until then, most Christians would fast twice a week, Wednesdays and on Fridays, from waking up until sundown, they'd have an, an evening meal once the sun had gone down. And that Lent, which is something we don't even observe anymore really in the, the non-denominational or the evangelical church, was actually a, a practice, a 40-day fast like Ramadan, in which the, the early Christians would not eat from sunrise to sundown for 40 days every single year. And it was interesting, I kind of came across this fact as we were starting our Daniel fast last year. And so I thought, oh man, I'm, I'm feeling like I've done the Daniel fast a lot and it's become a religious observation for me. It's become a, a detox and a diet the spirituality has fallen out of it for me. I need to change it. And so I was like, this, this year I'm just, I'm gonna do it differently. I'm just gonna fast sunrise to sundown. I'm gonna have one meal a day once the sun has gone down. It's a bad time of year to do it because it was in summer. So the sun went down quite late. Some days I got very hungry. But I started doing it. And so I did it for the Daniel fast and then the, the Daniel fast finished and I felt God say to me, hey, keep on doing it. Okay, so I kept on doing it. And, and I don't share this with you to be like, oh wow, Johnny, you're amazing because that goes exactly against the teachings of Jesus. But I share it with you as a testimony because nowadays I'll, I'll probably fast three to four days within the week. I won't eat until after the sun goes down, which has been easier at the moment because the sun goes down very early. Four o'clock, I get to have dinner. But I found it's changed the way that I interact with God. 
It's changed the way that I, I feel God close to me. It's, it's, gone, it's not a thing that I do to earn God's favor. It's not a thing that I do to, to convince God to move, but it's a, a way that I've found it's transformational in my life. And, and as I started to study it more, I found the theological basis for it really jumped out at me. You know, God's always countercultural. Where where culture zigs, God zags. And, and, and it's interesting, as the culture moves more and more to gratifying the body, to our desires of, of the flesh being the, the ultimate indicator of good, I've found a godly con- response can be to surrender the body. To say, actually, this is not the thing in my life that defines good and evil. Not, not legalism, which can happen too easily. Right? We've all done the Daniel fast in which someone's gone on a witch hunt for processed grain. It's not what this is about. But, but in, a, in, a, in a pursuit, in a response to God, and I'm done, but I want to say I've found that we fast for two reasons. The first is to starve our flesh. And I don't mean literally our body, but, but I mean in the way that the authors of the New Testament talked about our flesh as, as your body as a whole, not just your body as a whole, but that, that primal base animal part of you, that desire part, which isn't the things that you want to do, but you find yourself doing anyway, as Paul says. What scientists might call our animal brain, the, the imagery used in Genesis 3 is a beast within you, that sin is a beast within you, that if you feed it, it grows stronger. But if you starve it, it loses its hold over you. You know, it's interesting, both Adam and Eve in the garden and Jesus in the desert, those temptations had a lot to do with food. And I believe there's a reciprocal relationship between our level of self-discipline with food and our level of self-discipline with sin. I don't say that to, to shame anyone who struggles with food, but I say often the things that we're tempted with in life, food will be the easiest one to say no to. Everything else after that is much, much harder. And so in fasting, we develop a, a discipline. No, God, I can, I can actually go without this for a while in pursuit of something that feels more. Actually, what my body says to me is not the ultimate definition of good and evil in my life. I don't need to follow every whim. I don't need to do everything that I feel like. The, the food is not made for stomach and the stomach is not made for food. I am made for pursuit of you, God. I have a purpose. My body is holy and so I'm gonna set it apart by doing something it doesn't want to do to remind myself that it's not all about what I wanna do. Number one, we starve our, our flesh and, and number two, we fast as prayer. That when you fast, you, you, you take your faith from a head thing and, and in an inexplicable way, you place it into your body. You say, this is not just an idea that I'm thinking about, but this is, this is something in which I'm creating space for you, God. Sure, we create a physical reminder when your tummy grumbles, you're like, oh yeah, I'm fasting, I should pray. But that's a, a side benefit. It's not, the, it's not like a physical alarm clock to remind you that you should be aware of God. Fasting instead, the hunger of the heart and mind for answered prayer is brought into the body itself. And in doing it, we reject Plato. We say, no, the world is not split into evil, physical, and good spiritual. God made it all. And he made it all good, and it will be redeemed. And so today as I finish, and, and I'm done, why don't you stand to your feet? I'd ask that you close your eyes. And, and I just want you to think, as I was preparing this message, I had a dream. I don't mean like a, a sleeping dream. I have young children, so I just, it's just a blank to me. There's no dreams in there. It's just straight sleep or lack of. But, but I, I had a dream, a, a wondering, a what if, what if we as a church stepped into this idea of fasting? What if we as a church began to fast, not as a one-off fast for breakthrough, that's great, and we'll keep on doing stuff like the Daniel fast, but instead as a response to the culture that we're in. 
if we fasted as a bodily rejection of moral relativism, as a, as a weekly sacrament of setting aside our bodies, not as machines of pleasure, but as temples of the Holy Spirit. I feel like in doing that, we might start to open the door for God to do something incredible, that this is our house and it's God's house, that you are God's house, that your body is sacred, holy, set apart. And in what way might you be able to step into that truth? I want to encourage you and invite you. Maybe it simply looks like setting aside a day a week to fast, sunrise to sunset, doing whatever you can do, whatever you can fit into your life, maybe whatever you can't fit in because it's meant to be a little bit sacrificial, but doing something that says, God, I'm gonna, everything else about the culture around me is built around honoring and esteeming and valuing my body and its desires above everything. I'm, I'm moving against that current. I'm choosing to, to set my body aside for you, saying, God, you made me and you made me good and my body will honor you. And I'm gonna start that by doing this thing that I can't fully explain I'm going to trust you in it. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Why don't you close your eyes? In a moment, I'm going to pray. Before I do, I just want to make sure you know that everything we do as a church is invitational, not obligational. No one's going to follow up and say, hey, are you fasting? How's it going? But I stand here saying that I believe this is a good thing for us, a good opportunity, a God opportunity that we could step into. And so I'd love to pray, and I'm going to pray that from the perspective that you are wanting to fast that you are wanting to set aside your body to pursue God in spirit and in mind and body and in truth, that we would be all in. Let's pray. God, I pray that this morning, as we reflect on what it is to, to be a holy home, not just corporately, but individually, that your spirit would, would dwell within us, would be with us, that we would be that, that thin place between heaven and earth. God, would you help us to see ourselves and our bodies as you do? God, would we rise to your view of us, that, that we wouldn't buy into the lie that our bodies are, are, are base and, and evil and temporary, but that we would know that you made us and that you made us good. God, as we're faced with the choice of, of following your truth or inventing our own, help us to trust you. As we, as we stand in a world lacking truth, help us to be in the world, but not of it. God, would you be, uh, would we not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but would we, our minds be renewed? And as our minds are renewed, would that land in our, in our practical living day-to-day -day lives, would, would, it, would we be able to bring that to our bodies, set them apart as holy to you? God, I pray for everyone who might step into this invitation this week to try something a little bit different. I pray for those who are, who are ahead of us already, who've been fasting, that they would be encouraged to do it to continue doing it. God, I pray that this would not just be a religious observation. This would not be dieting. This would not be a thing that we do to feel good about ourselves, but that as we forego something, we would find life in you, that we would be defined by you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. 